Hello and welcome to The Signal. I'm Alex Scoltetti. And I'm Sam Gillette. We're with the audio workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. For the next half hour, we're going to tell you stories and let you know about what's going on around Halifax. Today on the show, you've heard of the Coast Burger Week, but now there's a new food celebration in town. Everybody knows what tacos are and everybody always had them growing up, so but they're also easy and they're simple, they're delicious, heavy, big flavors. Many hosts and guests use short-term rental services like Airbnb. We'll hear what they're doing to the local housing market. Growth of kind of dedicated full-time short-term rentals that act as kind of de facto hotels um, should be concerning. Winter is creeping into the HRM. Some weather services are already making their predictions for the season. We are saying that this winter will be filled with a lot of ups and downs on the thermometer, and so we are calling it a polar coaster winter. But how reliable are these far-off forecasts? That's coming up. A union that represents public service workers is raising concerns about a women's shelter damaged during Hurricane Dorian. Bryony House in Halifax provides shelter to women and children affected by intimate partner abuse. The 137-year-old building had to be evacuated after the storm. Since then, staff has been trying to find temporary solutions for its clients. But some people think it's taking too long. Chris Studley has more. There is not a bed in Halifax for women and children fleeing intimate partner violence. Colleen Coffey is the Regional Executive Vice President of the Public Service Alliance of Canada in the Atlantic region. She organized a rally this week to put pressure on Byrony House to find a new location. She says Byrony House employees are members of the Public Service Alliance of Canada. Many participated in the rally. I need the public to put pressure on the executive director to do what she was hired to do. When you're a manager, you're supposed to manage. And you don't just manage people, you manage a property. And she has known for a very long time that this property has needed to be replaced. Maria McIntosh is the executive director of Byrony House. She says clients are still being offered services and support, such as counselling. She says women and children in need are being taken in by other shelters in Nova Scotia. But Coffey says other shelters have told her they're at maximum capacity themselves. It just really upsets me that I know that there are women and children's lives at risk. I know it. I know it firsthand. It's this horrible, horrible, scary situation that a woman can pick up the phone and call this shelter and not know if they're going to get a place to go that night. There is a long-term solution in the works. Byrony House received over $5 million in government funding in 2016. It announced last month it was going to tender for a new shelter. McIntosh says it will take 18 to 24 months before it can build and open a new facility. For The Signal, I'm Chris Dudley. A group calling for a higher minimum wage in Nova Scotia is hoping to recruit new members and gather momentum. They're pointing to recent increases in Alberta, Ontario, and B.C. They say those provinces have all raised their minimum wage to $15 an hour, in part because of grassroots lobbying. In Nova Scotia, it's $11.55. That's the fourth lowest in Canada. Andrea McGuire has more. At a Halifax cafe, people concerned about minimum wage are gathering to learn about the Fight for $15 and Fairness campaign. It's a movement focused on improving labor standards and increasing the minimum wage. Sakura Saunders is a volunteer organizer with the group. We are inspired by the Fight for 15 in Ontario, 
where they had a $2.40 increase in the minimum wage in one go, and that resulted only six months later in the lowest unemployment rate in 18 years. Christine Saunier is the Nova Scotia director of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. She points to the city of Seattle, where an increase to a $15 minimum wage resulted in more jobs, and that meant they had more money to spend. That goes back into our economy, and it supports the very businesses that need to be raising their minimum wage. But Jim Cormier sees it differently. He's the Atlantic Director for the Retail Council of Canada. He's open to gradual increases, but... Now, as far as people just making arbitrary uh, calls for $15 an hour, $20 an hour, $18 an hour, that's a harder pill to swallow. He says unlike some other provinces, Nova Scotia bases its minimum wage on the consumer price index of the previous year, a process Cormier calls predictable, transparent, and objective. Whether it's fair to business owners or not, Nova Scotia's minimum wage is currently trailing behind two-thirds of the country. Sonia warns that could result in people looking for jobs elsewhere. You know, the current situation isn't good for anybody except a, a very few, and we know that's not trickling down. So let's have a conversation about what impact this has actually on the broader economy and society in Nova Scotia, and, and let's follow the research on it. The Fight for $15 in Fairness campaign is recruiting members and plans to keep the pressure on government. For The Signal, I'm Andrea McGuire. This is The Signal on CKDU. I'm Sam Gillett. And I'm Alex Scoltetti. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at SignalHFX. Short-term rentals have become a major part of the accommodation industry in Halifax. Websites like Airbnb, HomeAway, and Verbo help hosts generate more than $30 million of revenue in the past year, just in Halifax. But some people are paying the price when it comes to finding affordable housing. A team of researchers with McGill University released a report this week that includes details about the state of Halifax's short-term rental market. Ben Bogsky talk to Charlotte Below, a co-author of the report. Hi, welcome to The Signal. Hello. So I'm going to ask first, uh, what are your main findings in the study? Um, yeah, so uh, some of our main findings included very unequal revenue distribution among hosts. So about 10% of hosts in the region earn um, over half of all the revenue. Another interesting fact was on the topic of housing loss, um, about 700 housing units have been converted to full-time short-term rentals, again, in the region, which is about the same as the total amount of vacant housing um, on the rental market right now, um, meaning that if all of these short-term rentals were returned to the housing market, the vacancy rate would almost double. So who is impacted most by these short-term rentals? Um, I would say the, the main people who are impacted are um, people who are currently looking for rental housing. So people who don't own their homes, who are maybe in more precarious housing situations. Um, an important demographic also is students who are, you know, every school year looking for, for a new apartment in the city are definitely affected by one of the consequences of this housing loss is the low vacancy rate. Can you speak to that a little bit more, just what the general housing market in Halifax is like? Yeah, I mean, currently the vacancy rate is sitting around uh, 1.6%. And so, this is, I mean, it's, it's a very low vacancy rate. A healthy vacancy rate for, for a, a, an urban housing market is normally around 3 to 5%. And so, um, it just makes it very hard for, for people to find housing, especially if you're um, on a budget. So, how do short-term rentals in Halifax compare to other cities in Canada? Well, it's interesting. I think 
like in a lot of cities, there's a very high concentration of activity in the central city in sort of downtown central Halifax itself. But interestingly, um, the highest rates of growth in, in the region are actually happening out more in the suburbs. So that's a bit different than a lot of cities. Um, I think Halifax benefits a lot from, or like the region in general benefits a lot from home sharing as a practice for um, attracting more, more tourists to the region. But growth of kind of dedicated full-time short-term rentals that act as kind of de facto hotels um, should be concerning. What do you think about the province and cities planning to address the issue? Well, I think the province has um, taken a good first step here in modernizing their tourist accommodation regulations to better govern home sharing and short-term rentals. Um, I think the database definitely has the potential to provide for effective enforcement at a number of levels, but um, if the city wants to address or if the region, I guess, wants to address the issues that are more particular to it, it'll definitely have to take a few more steps working off of the the registration system that's been proposed. What does this research tell us about how cities are changing in general, if uh, anything? Well, I mean, definitely the the growth of these short-term rental platforms has provided a possibility for people who own property to monetize it differently than in the past. You know, previously you could either you know, rent it out to a long-term tenant or, you know, leave it vacant and, you know, sell it and hope that it appreciates. But now there's kind of this new revenue stream. And so I think cities need to be cognizant of the incentives um, around that, that a lot of people, you know, in their own self-interest will choose to do that and, you know, be, be cognizant of the effects on the, on the rental market potentially. And is there anything else you'd like to talk about or share with me? You know, I think I would just say that um, our general recommendation is, for the Halifax Regional Municipality to, um, when considering how to regulate home sharing and short-term rentals going forward, is to be permissive of of, um, true home sharing, which uh, generates benefits for Halifax residents and for visitors. So in a lot of ways, it's a win-win. But to crack down on commercial operators who really benefit at the cost of local residents. Thank you for the time. (laughs) Okay, thanks. The province is drafting laws to regulate the short-term rental market. Those laws are expected to come into effect early next year. What do you think about short-term rentals in Halifax? We're Signal HFX on Twitter and Instagram. Hey, this is Craig Silverman. I'm the media editor for BuzzFeed News, and you're listening to The Signal. This week, tortillas are taking over the town. The first ever Halifax Taco Week has restaurant grills sizzling all over HRM. A lot of people seem pretty excited. I decided to visit a local downtown restaurant to get an early taste of this latest food promotion. Eamon Slattery's a prep cook at Julep Restaurant and Bar in downtown Halifax. He remembers what it's like to dish up hundreds of burgers for Burger Week. You kind of end up making burgers and fries 24-7. And then the guys on the line just kind of feel like they went to McDonald's. This week, it's Taco Week. It's like Burger Week, but with tacos. Restaurants around HRM are serving up their own twists on the South American dish, and a portion of the proceeds go to Feed Nova Scotia. Slattery expects a crazy rush serving up Julep's signature taco. For, I mean, yeah, I just think we're going to be making lots of cauliflower tacos. <laughs> Ryan Wolf is part owner at Julep. He says Taco Week falls at the right time of year. November is notoriously a slow month. Everybody's kind of saving up their Christmas money, and then December everybody kind of goes off. So this is the first year for Taco Taco Week, so uh, it'll be interesting. Wolf's been through multiple burger weeks at his other restaurant, Unchained Kitchen. 
He thinks tacos might have the same draw. Everybody knows what tacos are, and everybody always had them growing up, so they're also easy, and they're simple, they're delicious, heavy, big flavors. And they could have a big impact. Burger Week has raised over a quarter million dollars for Feed Nova Scotia in the past few years. Karen Terrio is from Feed Nova Scotia. We're, we're really excited just thinking about the potential that Taco Week has in terms of getting people out to support uh, local restaurants and buying lots of tacos. And in turn, hopefully we'll see lots of funds raised for Feed Nova Scotia. Alex, we're not sure about how much money um, Taco Week will actually raise compared to Burger Week, but it's sure to be the taco, the town. Thanks for putting a little bit of cheese on the top of your delicious story there, Sam. Oh, man. <laughs> You're listening to The Signal, storytelling from the audio workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. I'm Alex Scoltetti. And I'm Sam Gillett. Still to come on the show, the need for change in science, technology, engineering, and math programs. It was scary to come out in engineering and like have people know that I was trans because I can remember in my first year there was uh, a group of men who were very set in their ways, were very one-sided. How one woman is making vintage clothing more accessible. These clothes are for me, like they're made for me, like I'm meant to be here. And solar panel technology, so hot right now. It's been great not only from the community building perspective, but from economic development, because we're seeing more solar companies form. The science, technology, engineering and math disciplines are still mainly a male environment. But some say it's time to make it a more comfortable place for the queer community. A Dalhousie researcher is getting outside the lab to take action. Maxime Vigneault prefers grabbing his coffee at the Glitterbean Cafe instead of school. He feels much more relaxed at the queer-friendly cafe on Spring Garden Road than at Dal Sexton campus. He started transitioning from female to male over a year ago, but some of his engineering profs still call him by his old name or think he's female. The experience is isolating, and Vigneault worries about more than just grades. For example, which washroom to use. He says some kind of support system would make a big difference. To have all my hormones changing and taking six courses was a lot, and just to have had someone to guide me through that would have made it a lot easier, I think, or just even be recognized that I'm there and I'm here. And that's really where I think my role comes in uh, as an out queer person. Landon Getz is a PhD student in Dalhousie's microbiology and immunology program. He knows the isolating effect of being queer, and he hopes to create a support network within the largely cis male, heterosexual STEM environment. I can provide a space for people to feel comfortable and also use my own identity uh, and my own position to help people feel comfortable in those environments. He says professors are open to learning, but there's still a lot of work to be done, especially for trans and non-binary people. To that end, he's organized a science conference that will focus on the work of queer students and researchers. The Cat Can STEM Colloquium will run January 17th and 18th at Dalhousie.
Thanks for that story, Alex. 26 community organizations across Nova Scotia are going solar. They've been approved for the province's Solar Electricity Community Buildings Program. The program allows not-for-profit groups to install rooftop solar panels and sell the energy they make back to Nova Scotia Power. Felicia Chandler has the details. New solar panels will be going up at the Bayside Travel Centre off the new Highway 104 interchange in Annie Ganesh. It's a business incubator for the Pakwak Mi'kmaq Nation. Rose Paul is the CEO. I'm excited. Um, it's been our, in our strategic plan for many years. Uh, our goal was to um, develop such, such a building that will have as much energy component to the building, not only for sustainability but for longevity. The Bayside Centre is part of a provincial program to help with the project. The cost of solar installations range from twenty to $200,000, but the band will make money selling its solar power back to the NSP grid. They'll get a 20-year purchase agreement and be paid a premium rate for the power of $0.30 cents a kilowatt hour versus the Nova Scotia average of $0.16. Cents. We'd like to see that going back into community as priority. Mombrickett says the other benefit is jobs in a booming solar industry getting a boost from government programs. The, the money saved is going back into the communities. So it gives them the ability to save money, of course, on their energy consumption. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they're reducing their carbon footprint. Just over a year ago, there were 13 approved solar installers in the province. And today, there are 57. Mombrickett says the demand is clear. There were more than 1,300 applicants for the program. This is Felicia Chandler for The Signal. Halifax. More and more people are interested in organic and environmentally friendly products. A 2017 study by the Canadian Organic Trade Association showed the organic market alone was worth more than $5 billion annually. Now a couple in Bedford is hoping to cash in on that trend. They've opened the first organic and bulk market in the community. But as Kate Woods reports, it may not be for everybody. Sarah Goss has been in the healthy food industry for nine years. She says people in Bedford were looking for more food and bulk buying options. So you can go to like your bulk bar or you can go to Sobeys or Superstore, but you can't always just find your organic options and you have to search the whole store to find what you're looking for. Goss and her husband decided it was a market they could jump into. Probably our most popular spot in our store is the refillery and the bulk wall. So customers are looking for more of a zero waste. They're looking for alternatives to packaging. They're looking for clean products that also come package free and we have those options here. Sylvain Charlebois says when it comes to niche markets and organic products, there's an issue. He's the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. The challenge, of course, is price. Uh, most of the products are, 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 more expe- are typically more expensive. People are willing to try organics out and, and, and buy them once in a while, but uh, not regularly because they just can't afford it. Charlebois says growing things organically without pesticides is a lot more work and very expensive. And he says that's unlikely to change. Uh, I don't believe that tomorrow uh, or at some point sales of organic products will become mainstream. We don't see it in our numbers. He says limiting the growth of environmentally friendly foods and ways of buying them, big grocery chains are held to higher safety standards, so people can't bring their own containers because of the potential for contamination. That's the market for shops like Luminate Co., who can target people who don't mind spending a little bit more money or are willing to buy in bulk. For The Signal, I'm Kate Woods. This is The Signal, radio storytelling from the audio workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. I'm Alex Scoltetti. And I'm Sam Gillett. You can catch us here on CKDU on Friday afternoons at 1.30. 
or check out our podcasts. We tweet them out at SignalHFX. Now, vintage clothing is big business in Halifax, but there's one group of people who haven't benefited from the boom. As Christina Pappas tells us, women with plus clothing sizes have had few choices, until now. Oh, like, these clothes are for me. Like, they're made for me. Like, I'm meant to be here. Olivia Weir runs Fat Chance Vintage, a place women size 12 and up can turn to for consigned clothing. Vintage was, like, getting really popular in Halifax, but, like, every time I went, I realized that, like, I couldn't wear any of it. I just started it out of sheer, like, want to be able to wear clothes that I found at markets. She says that was a big hole in the market. Marine Elsie Court owns Elsie's used clothing. She agrees. If someone comes in that's a size 16 and is looking for really great pieces, there's definitely less. And we get asked for it fairly often. And for that reason, we put most of our pieces that size in a certain area, just so that they are easier to find. Where's business will also make them easier to find. But she says it's important that her customers can reap the benefits of consignment. So I was like, I always wanted my clothes to be affordable and accessible because, like, What's the point of finding these beautiful clothes if no one can afford to buy them? Weir sells her clothes through her Instagram page, Fat Chance Vintage. She puts calls out to women to model her clothes on the page so people can see the way the clothes look. She says it's satisfying to have customers who feel noticed and catered to, sometimes for the first time. Christina Pappas for The Signal. Weir also goes to markets all around the HRM. You can find her at the North by Night Holiday Market this Saturday. If you're looking to do something this weekend, Juno Award winner Matt Mays is performing at Dalhousie. Here's a taste. One, two, one, two, three, four.
That was Queen of Portland Street by Matt Mays. You can catch him live at the Dalhousie Arts Centre tonight at 8. There is so much good music in Halifax, but I don't know, what are you? What are your plans for the weekend, Alex? Nothing really, uh, but uh, that would be a fun show to go to. I love that harmonica in there. What a great tune that was. So In between tacos, maybe? I don't mm-hmm, know. <laughs> totally. The Metro Basketball Association has seen an increase in players this season. For young boys, there are many role models in the sport to look up to. The Toronto Raptors and local NBA player Lindell Wigginton. But some are wondering who young female players have to look up to. As Olivia Malley tells us, they may have to set their sights on the local scene. This is a scene familiar to plenty of young Maritimers. Lila Rashid has played basketball for almost a decade. She says in all that time, she only had one female coach. I really looked up to her. It was really good timing to have her as a coach during that formative time. But some young women will have little or no memories of female coaching or refing. Jen Lloyd McKenzie is a trailblazer who wants to change that. She's been involved in refing for 16 years. Now she's trying to get more female officials to join her. With our new officials program, we've we've gone out and, and recruited a few females who have played the game and who have, you know, coached and and refereed other sports. So we're getting there. We're getting there. Lloyd McKenzie estimates there's probably one female ref for every nine or ten males. As for the male-to-female coach ratio, NBA president Stephen Malloy says it's something they don't track. Having women coaches and refs, though, is something Lloyd McKenzie believes is important. When you're hearing messages from people who sound like you, look like you, I mean, they're going to be more meaningful. She also believes female coaches and refs have something to show young female players. To see that there are coaches that have played the game and can be successful and have leadership positions. For Lila Rashid, Lloyd McKenzie was that kind of role model. I don't know if she knows how much of an impact she makes on the young girls. She's just always been professional, but yet friendly and just really good to have as a young female basketball player. Rashid and Lloyd McKenzie hope more young women will soon have that experience. For The Signal... I'm Olivia Malley. Now, it's been a really cold week, at least until today. Yeah, it's nice to get above freezing a bit. But if you're wondering about the rest of the week or even the rest of the season, well, we decided to ask Dane Patterson to see if he could get an early forecast. It's umbrella weather in Halifax, but that could change any minute. The Farmer's Almanac has been predicting seasonal weather for over 200 years. They released their winter weather forecast in August. Managing editor Sandy Duncan says Haligonians should buckle up for a turbulent ride this winter. We are saying that this winter will be filled with a lot of ups and downs on the thermometer, and so we are calling it a polar coaster winter. Uh, But in your area particularly, it's going to be a very cold, very wet, and very white winter on top. The Almanac doesn't say much about their methods. Duncan says only that it involves math and astronomy. Ian Fulkins is a professor of atmospheric science at Dalhousie University. He says weather is hard to predict months ahead of time. Outside of major events like Enzo events or volcanoes, 
it becomes pretty hard to predict the seasonal weather on a two to three month time scale. Enzo, or El Nino and La Nina events, typically happen every two to seven years. Even then, they're inconsistent. Environment Canada plans to send out their winter prediction later this month. Fulkin says even their judgment is cloudy. Unfortunately, what comes from Environment Canada is only probably slightly better than Farmer's Almanac. Historically, Environment Canada admits it's about as accurate as a coin flip. Between 1981 and 2010, their long-range winter temperature forecast was correct just under 50% of the time. Meteorologists say that predicting the weather beyond two weeks in advance is a bit of a fool's errand. Duncan disagrees. I think it's a little bit of professional jealousy. Only time will tell whether that's the case. For The Signal, I'm Dane Patterson. If all else fails, there are other signs that can point to a colder than normal winter. Weather lore tells us to watch out for thicker corn husks or two woodpeckers sharing the same tree. No kidding. I'll have to keep an eye out for woodpeckers. Or would that be keeping an ear out for woodpeckers? But anyways, thanks for lending us your ear today. If there's anything you want to hear again, we'll be posting a link on our social media feeds. Our handle is SignalHFX on Twitter and Instagram. Or use our hashtag, SignalRadio. We'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts on the show. Thanks this week to producer Leslie Tatum, associate producer Ben Bosti, and Christina Pappas was our social media editor. And a shout out to technician Mark Pino, an audio producer Pauline Dakin. I'm Alex Coltetti. And I'm Sam Gillett. We'll be back next week with more stories.